Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the New Books in Economics, a podcast channel from the New Books Network. I'm Peter Lawrenson, an Associate Professor of Economics at the University of San Francisco. Today, we'll be talking to Matthew Jackson about his book, The Human Network, How Your Social Position Determines Your Power, Beliefs, and Behaviors. Network theory is a vibrant area of research across the social sciences uh, and is crucial for anyone to understand who wants to understand social media, political echo chambers, pandemics, inequality, financial crises, and a lot more of important issues. Matt's one of the world's most influential academic researchers in this area, um, is the author of the authoritative textbook on network theory and economics and uh, numerous pathbreaking research articles. Um, this book that we'll be discussing today distills all this work down to the level that uh, any smart person can follow. So I highly recommend it. So with that, uh, Matt, first, why don't you uh, first tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, hi, Peter. It's great to be here. I'm I'm a, an economist by training, but I think a, a person who's generally interested in human behaviors. And so over the years, I've gravitated towards studying social interactions pretty widely. Um, and I use whatever tools are necessary to, to better understand how people behave and why they behave that way. Okay. Um, and you're a professor at uh, Stanford? Yes, I'm a professor at Stanford University. I'm also in the external faculty at Santa Fe Institute and inter- interact with a lot of people through that. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so why don't you start us off, just like, tell us what, um, what is, what is, what is even the field? Is it, is it network theory the right term for it? Or, um, you know, I've heard people refer to network science or, or other things like, what is it, you know, what are some of the basic, uh, concepts and the approach, uh, and, and what kinds of things can it tell us that other approaches to studying social phenomenon, um, might not? Yeah. I mean, I, I guess, at the heart of it all is that that human or, humans are social animals, so we depend on each other for all kinds of things, and and we've evolved to to a point where we really can't function without the other people around us, and we organize ourselves, and that the the, the organizations take certain patterns, and and you know human networks are uh, all of the patterns that. Uh, describe those organizations. So who are my friends? Who are my acquaintances? Who are the people I work with at, at work? Um, and it also extends to which companies do business with which other companies? What do supply chains look like? Which countries are trading with other countries? Which countries are in conflict with other countries? So you it, you know it scales up and down and it, it determines a lot of, of uh, behaviors. And, and so that's why as an economist, I'm interested in it. And I think, you know, it, it has fundamental implications for, for all of our lives. So what are, what are some of the kinds of things you look at with networks? So you start out by like, just looking at you know, what say a, a firm, who a firm is doing business with, um, or, you know, who, who someone 
says are their friends and you know you can draw sort of a picture and connect connect the dots but now once you've once you've connected those dots what kinds of things do you look for or how can you how can you build on that yeah i mean i, th- I think the there's sort of two starting points one is that the potential ways in which we could organize ourselves is enormous so if you think about all the possible friends you could have in the world there's a huge number of them and yet we have a small number of and the um, actual patterns that describe those interactions turn out to be important. So who is it that I end up interacting with and how well are they connected to the network? So the kinds of things that we look at in, in a network to understand people's position and, and outcomes would be, you know, how central is their position and where central can be defined in different ways, but how, how well connected are they in the network uh, when we look at the network at a, as a whole, how much inequality is there in, in terms of people's connections? Are some people very isolated and other people very central? Uh, how divided is a network? So we look across groups. If we look across ethnicities or you know, castes in, in uh, some societies or by religion and so forth, do we see different network patterns across different groups? And do those patterns affect what kinds of information people have and how quickly they get that information and what they believe and what opportunities they have. So there's a, a, a lot that we can say about what those networks look like and what kinds of patterns we see. And then what we try and do is, is use those patterns to see whether or not those predict how people are behaving and what kinds of outcomes uh, we see. And, and that sort of informs policy. So if, if we really want to attack inequality or polarization or contagion, these, these things, fundamentally, networks are at the heart of them. And we really need to understand those structures in order to, to really optimally design those policies. Okay. Well, why don't we talk maybe specifically about one of those, um, like, uh, like inequality. So, you know, if I have, uh, yeah, what do you, what do you look for in, in a network and, you know, what does it tell you beyond like just looking at someone's, you know, standard demographic characteristics, like their level of education and uh, their, you know, savings or well uh, income, wealth, things like that. What, what more do you get from the network analysis and, and what conclusions can you draw from that? Sure. So I think, you know, if, if you take the classic view of inequality and, and a lot of the studies that people have looked at have sort of concentrated on, things like financial capital and human capital. So, you know, how much wealth does a family have and then how well-educated are, are people? So if I'm well-educated and I'm wealthy, then, then I should be um, succeeding. And if I'm poor and don't have much education, then I'm going to be um, in, in a worse situation. And I think the, what networks add to that picture is, is often what people call social capital and, and I think that it's sort of an important piece of the puzzle because, you know, if we take somebody who's in a, um, a disadvantaged situation, so um, a person who is in a community that does not, that's not well employed, that doesn't have um, the skills that are going to earn uh, you know, a, a good income, and we just give that one individual um, an education, that helps the person but it doesn't necessarily enable them to get employment if none of the people around them and the people that they're usually in contact with are employed. And so once we start looking at the 
at the the networks of contacts and and how people get jobs and how people get job interviews and so forth one realizes that that you know education is one piece of a puzzle but how well connected somebody is into the workforce is another important piece and and so if you want to design a policy that that gets people employed um, from disadvantaged backgrounds it's not only just giving them loans to get an education but then also making sure that they're able to take advantage of that education once they have it and so those are the kinds of insights that one gets from looking at this which are, are different from just taking a purely economic perspective so how do you how do you collect data say in that case about um, different people just to, to identify people who maybe aren't you know are not just uh, less well off or less educated but also uh, have um, you know lack lack network access to um, to opportunities how do you sort of document that yeah, I, there's a there's a, a lot of different ways that people have looked at these things, and some of them look at. Uh, I mean, you you can collect data directly, say in high schools, or who what friendships exist within a high school, and you'll find fairly strong segregation patterns within high schools, typically both across ethnicity and income levels throughout the United States, um, and. Uh, I, I haven't looked at high schools outside of the United States, but when you look in them inside the United States, you see pretty strong um, patterns of that form. And if you look at, uh, you know, you can look at other kinds of data sets where you're um, in, in some studies we've done in India, we look at, we've gone in and, and surveyed people and, and directly measured the connections of who they're sharing food and money with and resources and and medical help, things like that. And you can begin to look at how that cross caste lines and how that cross income lines and education lines within villages. Um, you can look across gender lines. So you can begin to see what those segregation patterns look like, um, often from surveys. Now in in with modern data, we can also look, you know, via various social media platforms. They provide data of people's friendships and connections. Um, so there's, there's a lot of different ways in which you can gather that data. You can also, you know, there's government data available in different places. So, you know, the, the location where somebody lives in, you can say something about their communities. So there's different ways in which we can get at these connections and, and, you know, then begin to measure what access do people have to other individuals who are employed and how does that matter? Um, so there's lots of techniques that, that we can use and, and increasingly larger data sets available to study this. So how, so what would be an example of something where, uh, you know, a policy of people that could be pursued if you recognize that maybe just, you know, handing someone money or, you know, putting them in a better school, uh, might not, uh, be enough. How could you, how could you intervene on, you know, cause social networks, I mean, that's, I mean, we can talk more about like, you know, how do you, how do you define these links? Like if I have, if I have a bunch of people can, that I follow on Instagram, I'm not sure that's going to get me a job. Right. So that's, that's one kind of link or, you know, other kinds of link could be like, who are my friends and relatives? And I, and it's pretty hard for me just like get more friends and relatives very easily. So, so how do we uh, sure. decide what counts as a link and, and how do we help people create links that'll be beneficial to them? Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it's not an easy process. So social engineering and, and rewiring networks is not easy by any means. And I think one thing that comes out of it are what I, I like to call policy cocktails. 
and and that means that we don't use policies in isolation, but we think of them as combined. And the kinds of insights we get about that are okay. Look, you know, if, if we want to help in education, we need to work on educating the children. We also need to work on educating the parents of those children as to how the education matters and how to best educate their children, both in school and out of school in terms of you know, non-cognitive um, skills. And then we also need to put that together with the, the kinds of access that people need to eventually get um, out of of, of a poverty trap, meaning that they eventually have to have opportunities to get employment. And, you know, taking a network perspective then also gives you an idea that the more people in a community that you begin to get employed, the more opportunities can flow into that community because, you know, you really need to know somebody in, in a company to get an interview, you need to know, you need to have connections in order to get heard and to, to have those opportunities to, to advance. And the more that those are built, the more leverage you have. And so I think it, it goes together with, with thinking that these policies need to be combined so that we have all the ingredients that are necessary. And these can leverage the network so that once a community starts getting some people involved, then they can get more involved. And you know, things like mentorship programs try and bring people from a community back into that community to help others learn how to do what they needed to do to get to, you know, to be successful. And then also to get opportunities through those people and to get referrals from those people so that they can, you know, follow the same kinds of paths. And the more that that happens, then it, 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 it snowballs and there's sort of a multiplier, a social multiplier effect, if you, if you would. And so the, the idea here is both combining the policies and taking advantage of the network um, features of those policies. Okay, so that makes sense. Are there are there any uh, instances where this has been uh, done successfully? Well, I mean, I, I guess the most striking kinds of instances are, are ones that are fairly dramatic, but not ones we would want to use on a, a large scale. So I think the probably the most famous, you know, the the moving to opportunity study that was done in the 1990s um, as part of an act of Congress was a, an experiment where they gave people money to move to change neighborhoods. And, and they, they took people from relatively poor neighborhoods and moved them into wealthier neighborhoods. And there you can see the effects on the children that moved into those wealthier neighborhoods. Um, you know, years later, uh, they end up having much better outcomes than the children who were not moved under the same program. And, and so, you know, that gives you some idea of the magnitude of this, but that's not a program where you're putting all these things together. And I think, uh, you know, they're, they're increasingly now when people are thinking about policies, um, they're, th they are beginning to think along the lines of combining these but often you'll see, okay, we need a policy to redistribute income or we need universal basic income, or you'll hear discussions about early childhood education and so forth. But I think, you know, we need to take a holistic view of this and you don't see as many holistic policies um, d designed in that way. Doesn't it though, um, you know, a lot of the policy work, um, especially when economists have been involved, we've sort of 
almost pushed it in the other direction because we've been advocating for you know randomized controlled trials and you know carefully designed things that sort of you know it's easiest to do when you're looking at one thing at a time whereas if you put together a whole package of stuff even if you then you know randomly apply that package to people you may not know which parts of it actually work or not so doesn't that make it harder to have kind of confidence as a social scientist that like in terms of i mean you, can, you still see if something works as a package but then you don't you end up not knowing what what parts of the package are really important how do you how do you disentangle that yeah, it's actually an, a, a very timely question. I, I've just been working on a project, a research project with uh, a, a big team from both Stanford and MIT, um, in, including Abhijit Banerjee and Esther Duflo and Arun Chandrasekhar and, and a host of others. Where what we've been doing is is trying to understand how to get. Um, this was done in Haryana in, in India. We're trying to get people to immunize. So we're trying to improve um, programs that encourage parents to to vaccinate their children, and in that situation, there's a bunch of different ways in which we, you could go about doing this. So you can, um, you know, a- actually pay people for vaccinating their kids. You can have various um, other interventions where you have uh, well-known people from the area. Uh, endorse it. You can send reminders. So there's like, you know, like say f- four or five different policy um, options. And then there's different ways in which you can do those. And so when you, when you put it all together in the study we we're doing, there's something like, you know, 75 different policies that you could consider. And um, doing a randomized control trial is, is quite complicated on that. But what you can do with, with sort of modern statistical techniques is begin to, you know, look at combinations of these things. And from the way that the combinations work, you can figure out which aspects of it are, are, you know, important. And from that sort of back out what the value added of each different component is, and then actually try and design an optimal policy and, and estimate how good it is from the data. So it's, it's, it's possible to do randomized control trials on a, with lots of different policy arms at the same time. And, and you learn that, you know, actually from that study, we see that if we had tried one at a time, none of them would have looked like they worked, Mm. but when you put them together, um, you know, they actually work fairly well. So the, you know, having somebody remind somebody or, or having somebody prominent in the village come in and talk to them neither of those would have done anything nor would just paying them on their own. But when you put all three of those in, in combination at certain ways, then you actually get, you know, like a 50%, or I guess it was 45% increase in the participation wow. um, within those villages. So you get a substantial bump from combinations of these things. And, and that's something we can do now, right? You can, you know, with modern, uh, with scales at which we can do interventions now and, and track them and analyze them, uh, allows us to to look at policy cocktails and and analyze them fairly fairly clearly. You must need a pretty large uh, scale to to roll that out, though, right? A pretty large large sample yeah, size. Yeah, yeah. So this was not this this had a huge investment from the um, local government, and you know involved tens of thousands of of subjects and and you know several years of of interventions and observations. So it's it's not easy to do these kinds of things, but the you know, the importance of the kinds of things we're talking about, you know, getting a society immunized or getting a society educated 
these are such deep and important questions that the, the, the amount of money that's involved in doing these kinds of studies is, is really peanuts. Yeah, that's true. From you know, it seems as as an academic it's, or you know ordinary person, it may seem like uh, a lot of money. But when you think about the the social benefits, or you know what what governments are, are spending on policies which may or may not be effective um, all the time, then it uh, maybe doesn't doesn't look so bad. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, well, that's that's great. Um, that sounds like a really you know important uh, work in. Um, obviously directly in, in the uh, development context, but, but presumably there may be some, some learning from that that can be carried over to, uh, you know, thinking about influencing pro-social behaviors of various kinds in, uh, in other settings. Um, so another, yep. um, another thing you've worked on is, uh, is kind of looking at, you know, the question of, I guess, I think your chapter title is the wisdom or folly of crowds, right? We talk about things like crowdsourcing, uh, you know, but also there's, you know, the classic book, The Madness of Crowds. People are people worry about groupthink, you know, is it better or worse when you get people together? So, um, so it's shifting gears a little bit. So what, what can, what can uh, studying networks uh, tell us about this? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess there's, there's sort of two, um, two different insights, I think, that are fairly central uh, that come out of, of network analysis to, to understanding belief formation. Um, one is that, that we often underestimate how segregated our networks are and the extent to which we're hearing information that is, that comes to us through multiple people, but might be traced back to the same source, right? So, you know, if, if three of my friends are all reading the same news media and then they independently tell me something um, it, it's, it's natural for me once I've heard something three times to believe it more than if I've just heard it once, even if I'm really rational and thinking carefully about it, I, I don't necessarily say, oh, it, it really could be that all three of these people read the same article and they're just repeating it to me. And the, the more similar, uh, my network is the more likely that the people around me are, are all getting their information from the same sources. And as as humans, we're just sort of natural counters. And the more we hear something and the more we hear one thing versus another, we more we believe that first thing versus another thing. And and that, you know, I, I guess it's it's become sort of popularized under the the terminology echo chambers in, in the media and so forth. But I think it's a, you know, when when we get down to the networks, we can actually see exactly how this works and and where it's going to happen and what kinds of information it's going to happen with. And there are subtleties in this in this structure, and you know some ideas can spread very widely, and other ones can can um, be distorted and and trapped. And I think you know understanding the network structure helps us understand that. Um, and there's there's other biases that we have. You know, we don't account for the fact that um, most of the people we're talking to are not random samples from the population um, in terms of how prominent they are, but they're the most prominent people. So if, if, you know, you're following somebody on Twitter, usually the people you're following on Twitter are the people with the most followers. Uh, and, and most of the stuff comes through your feed is going to be the people who are broadcasting to the most people. And the, the people who are broadcasting to the most people aren't necessarily, you know, random samples from the society. And, and th that comes with biases. And 
And so I think, you know, all of these biases reflect the structure of the network, but are ones that we often overlook when we form our opinions. So how do you study this? Uh, like, what's the balance between, uh, you know, purely theoretical analysis of, you know, just uh, draw the graph and, and uh, you know, uh, figure out in principle how things could work versus uh, gathering data and, and looking at specific contexts? Yeah, I mean, I, there's sort of three levels at which this is studied. And the, the first one is, you know, we, we, we're very good now at, at doing the theory side of things and working out what would happen if a society had a certain kind of graph structure to it and, and people, you know, talk to each other at certain rates and then believed things that their, their friends told them with a certain probability. That's something that we, you know, we have pretty tractable models of and we can see how that works. The second level of that is then often just taking it into a laboratory. So, you know, we can sit people down at, at computer terminals and, and put them together and then give them information about, you know, um, a fictional problem that they have to solve, something that they, you know, that they're trying to discover and understand, and then see how they behave and, and whether the kinds of theories that we have um, actually match up with that. And then the third level is, is doing this in the wild. And, and that is the hardest level because it's often the one that we have the least control over. So, you know, if we want to see how people are forming their beliefs about, you know, an upcoming election or um, a vaccine program or things like that, uh, there it's harder. You know, we don't have as much control over what the network is. They're hearing things from, you know, they might be on Facebook and hearing something. They might be on Twitter getting something else. They might be getting something from um cable news, they might be getting something from their friends. Um, so there's all, you know, directly from their friends and, and conversations that we don't observe. And so putting all of those influences together, that's the hardest part. And so often you'll see studies done on some particular, you know, medium, and then trying to see, you know, what happens as a function of, of the structure that we can observe there, and the information flows we can observe there. And you know you have to be pretty clever then about tracing uh, who knew what when and 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 how that affected their behavior. So does this mean that I shouldn't listen to my friends, or you know how how do I, uh, I guess as an individual, what can I do to ameliorate this? And then also as a society, you know, to the extent that like this might contribute to political polarization, is there, uh, you know. We can, we can analyze it and describe it and say it probably exists. Is there anything we can do about it? Yeah, I, I guess, you know, on um, on one level, you know, so, so let's take one particular aspect, the fact that I'm going to tend to associate with other people who are very similar to myself. So that's known as homophily. Um, so, you know, uh, if, if I'm talking to somebody, they're much more likely to be an economist than some other profession, they're they're more likely to have a similar age to me. They're more likely to have a similar education background, and so forth. So there's a, a bunch of things that are going to be true about my friends that that correlate their uh, experiences, past experiences, and outlooks with me. Okay. So on on the one hand, that can be limiting because then we have this you know, the, what we ta- just talked about in terms of they don't have as much diverse access to information. On the other hand, that can actually be quite useful because those are the people that that I can actually learn the most from in terms of having 
common experiences and um, facing the same challenges going forward. So, for instance, if you know if we're trying to uh, get a teenager from a disadvantaged background into university that's fairly demanding, um, what they have to go through and what their experience is going to be like and, and what kinds of both academic and social and mental challenges they're going to face are something that are probably best expressed by somebody who has come from the same background and gone through the same kinds of experiences. And so on the one hand, talking to people who are very similar to yourself um, gives you much higher quality information and, and better information but it gives you less diverse information, right? So there's this trade-off between the diversity of the information and sort of how useful that information is to you and, and how much you can make of, of somebody else's experience. And I think the, the thing that we can all do as people is understand what that trade-off is and understand when is it that we really need diversity in our information and when is it that we should be reaching out beyond our networks. And as a society, we can also try to make it easier for people to reach out beyond their networks when they need that more diverse information that they don't have and, you know, try to help through mentorship programs or through internship programs or, you know, pe put people in situations where they can learn more if their networks aren't giving them information, but without destroying the, the, the network structure that provides them that basic support and, and useful high quality information that they also need. Right. No, that sounds like uh, yeah, a great, uh, great set of things to to introduce. Uh, but but a tricky balance. Yeah, whether you want that person who you kind of can trust and is from your community in some sense uh, and can you know, understand your own situation when they're when they're talking to you, versus someone who's just uh, you know too much from your own community and therefore doesn't have a have the perspective of uh, of the broader the broader world, the broader network. Exactly. Um, so, so let's uh, talk now a little bit about um, kind of the broader context of um, work on networks. Um, I think when you started working on networks in the 1990s, um, at that point, my, my sense is that, uh, and you can correct me on this, is you know uh, they're pretty popular among sociologists, um, and there are a few physicists working on it. You know, on it from a very different um, perspective, but. Uh, it was almost completely absent um, from economics as, you know, a concept or, or even a, things we thought about at that point. Um, so how did you decide to start working on it? And, and how, what did other people, how did other people react when you told them you were working on networks? Yeah. Um, so it, it was serendipity. I, I was having a lunch conversation with Asher Walensky. And, uh, you know, at the time I was working pretty heavily in, economic theory and using game theoretic models to analyze institutions and, and people's interactions through those. And Asher and I were talking at lunch about, you know, what is it that makes somebody powerful? What, you know, how, how could we measure whether somebody has a better position and is better able in some organization or something to, to, to have influence and to change outcomes and so forth. And, you know, we started looking through the sociology literature and, and realizing that the kinds of questions that we naturally posed as economists of, of okay, people would want to put themselves in these particular situations, 
but now everybody would like to be in those more powerful situations. And if everybody is trying to form relationships at the same time with this in mind, what's going to happen? And, and so that was sort of the entry point that I had into studying networks. And over time, it's, it's grown as a, you know, economists and other social scientists have become increasingly aware of sort of the importance of social networks in, in, in understanding various human behaviors. Um, so it's, it's, it's changed quite a bit over the years, but that was sort of my introduction into it. And, and, you know, I just became fascinated with it. And you're right. There was a lot of study in sociology, um, you know, starting more than a century ago and a pretty rich literature of, of various studies of how people arrange themselves and, and, you know, some of the implications of that. And I think the, the healthy thing is that each one of these different disciplines brings in a different perspective. So, you know, physicists had been studying statistical mechanics of particles and interaction systems and had a mathematics associated with that. There's random graph theory from math. There's computer scientists who've been thinking about designing platforms and, and also just in general network systems and economists bring us uh, an understanding of how people make choices and and how um, you know that that kind of interaction structure impacts behaviors, and and so you can put all these different pieces together, and and you got a pretty rich mosaic of of both the, the structures of organizations and the ways in which they determine outcomes. Do you do you feel like you have a lot of uh, productive conversations with people um, coming from these different disciplinary backgrounds? Uh, yes, most definitely. I think you know there's actually increasing research on this now that finding that that um, you know research that happens across boundaries of fields tends to often involve more frequent synergies than and advances than you would find you know directly within a field, and I, I think you know talking to other people and using you know combining the tools that allow us to to study a large interacting system, but then still have incentives involved and understand behaviors and, um, you know, mix this with, with data. Um, th- this involves a, a pretty wide perspective and, and bringing tools from different disciplines and, and thinking about it from different angles is, is pretty vital. Yeah, and I, and I know you mentioned at the start. I, I was going to ask you, you know, what is it? How is it that economists uh, approach this a little bit differently? But I think you you mentioned one key thing is uh, that you know we tend to you know view people as as strategic, you know, intentional actors, and so it's not like just the network kind of drops down on our heads and we just live in it. But we also choose you know who to who to make friends with, who to contact, uh, who to interact with, and uh, and kind of shape the network ourselves. Yes, definitely. And, and I think that, that that perspective is important because it's it's clear that when we observe the patterns that are out there, that, that you know, they're, they're quite different than would be just purely influenced by the combination of environment and chance, that there's discretion that goes on as well. And understanding that discretion, uh, you know, can be very important. And I think, it, you know, it matters to different extents at different levels. You know, if you look at a... a, a f- uh, how people organize themselves within a small classroom at a fairly young age, um, you know, accounting, uh, discounting gender, you know, the, the, the graphs look fairly random, 
But as people get older, they organize themselves in increasingly rich patterns. And also when you look at you know things like the way that companies choose who they're trading with or countries choose who they're uh, allied with, um, these are certainly networks that have an enormous amount of discretion in them. And you know, if we want to understand financial contagions, we really have to understand the the incentives of banks to lend to each other and the incentives of of um, you know various parties to be borrowing from those banks and how those are going to cross borders and how that ad- adjusts to different regulations. Those those are questions that there's no way you could answer them without you know having an economic perspective in it. Right. I mean that's you know kind of finance is more our home territory. But like where do where do the networks play into uh, looking at um, issues about like financial instability? Yeah, I mean I think you know the, there was a real wake up call in in 2008. I mean the financial crisis that hit um, really changed the perspective, and at that time. Uh, you know, since then, I've talked to people at this, not only the Fed, but uh, you know, the, the, the central banks in Europe, in the UK, Mexico, you know, around the world. And, and I think that they're increasingly aware of the fact that if you want to understand systemic risk, if you want to understand uh, the risky position that some particular financial enterprise is in, you can't just look at their balance sheet. You have to be looking at the balance sheet of their their counterparties and the, who they're doing business with, and then it you know it instantly sort of expands outwards, and so they're they're gathering more and more information about what the network looks like, and and you know stress testing now is is done, um, you know it it's not just that a particular bank might be under stress, but if you put a bunch of its partners under stress at the same time then the chances that you're going to have a catastrophic event are much, much higher. And, you know, I think we, we dodged a bullet in 2008 and nine. And in some ways, I mean, it was a prolonged recession, but the, the acts of the you know, federal reserve and treasury were, um, were, were to move in with enough capital to, to make a difference fast enough that we didn't have a widespread contagion, but it, it could have been much worse. And, and I think we've learned from that. And, and now we have a much better understanding of the importance of the network and we're slowly getting better data, but there's a long way to go. Right. So it sounds like kind of they're, they're moving past the perspective of maybe that you get from an interest as or econometrics class where you kind of treat, treat each, each firm or each, as a separate observation or, you know, separate item that you can analyze by itself. And, uh, recognizing that, well, actually, they're all they're all interlinked in a systemic way, which makes them not kind of fit into that that format as cleanly as uh, as we might like. Yeah, yeah, and and I, and it, it's become, you know, now there's more research that shows that it's it's not only that they're interconnected, but they tend to have very correlated portfolios. So when you begin to put together the fact that they they tend to be invested in the same uh, assets, so for instance, in 2008. Many of the largest banks were all invested in subprime mortgages and various mortgage-backed um, securities and other kinds of derivatives associated with those. And you put that together with then a shock to that market, and it's not only that any particular one of them is in distress, but then the interlinkages between them and the fact that they're all under stress at the same time 
is, you know, puts you in a dangerous situation. And, um, and, you know, a stress, a stressor like COVID, um, is, is also a major stress of on uh, stressor on the financial system. And, you know, we haven't quite seen the impact of that yet. It's, um, but there, there's going to be a number of defaults on loans from companies that are going to go bankrupt because of the pandemic. And that, you know, will in turn lead to portfolio problems for, for certain banks and the extent to which those banks are interlinked with each other, um, you know, can be quite a problem if, if it's not understood beforehand. Right. So it's another thing to kind of keep, keep, they're not keep an eye on as a regulator and, and, uh, be aware of. So it's not just each firm, yeah, not each firm on its own or each bank on its own, uh, footing, but, but recognizing that, that, yeah, they're all one, one can drag down a lot of others. Yes. Yeah. Most definitely. So, so actually, so speaking of, speaking of the pandemic, um, what, uh, you know, yeah. obviously, uh, you know, your, your book, uh, actually assigned it for, uh, for our class and, you know, the students definitely, uh, clued into like, you know, getting into the chapter about contagion, you know, that's obviously very, very directly relevant for them thinking about, you know, the, the lives that we're living now and, uh, the risks that everyone's trying to take. Um, but, uh, yeah, have you done any work specifically, you know, since, since the pandemic kind of, uh, or, or policy advising or anything, just kind of using network theory to apply to how we respond to the pandemic or, or are there any things where maybe we've made mistakes that, you know, a better understanding of, of the functioning of networks might've, uh, helped us avoid them at least in retrospect. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, let me mention a couple of things and I'll be a little careful because we have one article that's just forthcoming, but it's embargoed. So I won't talk about that specifically, but I can talk generally about this. And I think, you know, one, one part of it. Um, so there's sort of, uh, I think two major lessons that we have that, that are important in understanding the contagion, um, and, and how things are working in the pandemic. And one is that, you know, the, the kinds of basic things that we talk about in terms of reproduction numbers and so forth, don't necessarily account for the full heterogeneity in populations. And so, the the kinds of of models that network scientists use to understand pandemics and and predict the evolution of a disease um, take into account the fact that there's a lot of heterogeneity in populations and some parts of the population are much more susceptible and can be hot spots and so it could be that an overall society um, on average doesn't have such a high propensity to infect each other and to propagate a disease, but there could be certain pockets where that is, is much higher than others. And the more asymmetric the society is in terms of those numbers, the more a disease can actually um, thrive. So it's, it's not just the average, but the, the sort of asymmetries in the structure of interactions can make a big difference as well. And I think that's important when we put it together. And so that means that, you know, there's certain areas where there's going to be higher contact rates, higher susceptibility, um, less vaccination and so forth. And, and that can lead those places to um, basically maintain and foster a disease that could be almost completely eradicated in another place. 
and then over time, that means it's going to come back, right? It, 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 if this world is interconnected, which our world is is increasingly interconnected, then that means that you're inevitably going to have that come back. And and um, and over time, I think there's only uh, you know one disease um, in human history that we've managed to to fully eradicate, and and you know it's because it's very difficult to make sure that you're stamping things out all over. And I think that that couples together with an economic perspective of what we know as externalities, which is that, you know, one person's problem becomes another person's problem. And and so in particular, when we're looking across governments, the fact that governments aren't necessarily coordinating, you know, means that, that um, you know, for instance, in, in vaccinating now, uh, we, we're all sort of worried about vaccinating our own populations but the more that we're worried about vaccinating our own populations, the the less that is being uh, paid attention to what's happening in other places where there's not um, as, as strong a vaccination rate, which then allows the disease to to thrive more in certain environments. And that asymmetry can be worse than if we were you know had a, a world consortium to very carefully. Uh, roll the the vaccine out on a world scale rather than doing it um, each country on their own. Right. So even if we were successful in vaccinating, you know, everyone in the U.S., then still, uh, you know, most likely poorer countries uh, would, uh, who, who, you know, we, if we didn't, don't, don't share a vaccine with them or, or help them get access to vaccines, then they can kind of serve as a reservoir and to continue to, uh, you know, be affected uh, economically, which also you know affects the rest of the world, but also uh, uh, I guess develop new new strains and and just be be that pool from which it could come roaring back to the to the rest of the world at any point. Exactly, and and I think that you, you sort of hit it on, on you know, the, both of those levels. What one is that you know now our economies are increasingly inter- interacting, and so you know if the supply chain is disrupted for for critical, you know, we, we just saw what happened just with, you know, a, a week of loss in the Suez Canal, you know, the global supply chains are important now. And so you start cutting that and from certain countries, if their economies are doing poorly, that's going to hurt others. And then the second part of the longer that we have large populations that are not vaccinated, the more we will have new variants and, and changes in the structure of this. And Instead, trying to get this all under control at once would lead to uh, a lowering chance that you're going to have new variants developing and eventually, you know, needing new vaccines to deal with those new variants. And, you know, the longer the the virus is out in the wild and the, the longer it's multiplying and the longer it's exposed to partially vaccinated populations, um, you know, the, the worse it becomes. And so figuring out a way to get everybody vaccinated um, most efficiently rather than, you know, doing it haphazardly uh, would would be to the world's advantage in the long run. And and yet, you know, it's, it's very difficult to find in countries willing to cooperate with each other on this. Right. It's always, uh, you know, it's a natural tendency to say, well, you know, sure, I should take care of other people, but I got to take care of my own people first and maybe not recognize the extent to which taking care of other people sometimes is necessary to take care of your own people. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, right now it's a lot of sharing, there is sharing, but it's often, well, we've got extra, you know, we're in a situation where 
um, now we're we're in a good shape. Now we can share this with with you, or we'll share something that we found we don't like and doesn't work. Or <laughs> yeah, um, you know, it's it's not it's not a, a far sighted and foresighted um, interaction. Right. Yeah. It doesn't exactly engender trust if they say, "Well, we've we've got this vaccine we like best, and uh, you guys can have our other one." Um, that's uh, yeah, especially especially you know the the U.S. and other developed countries do not have the best record of uh, of uh, being thoughtful about. Uh, medical uh, issues in other countries um, or, or uh, yeah, respecting, giving them reasons to trust us uh, can be a problem um, or people in our own country, unfortunately, as well. Um, so uh, so on a different topic, um, so, so I'm managing a master's program at the University of San Francisco where we train or trying to train uh, students to understand and work in the digital economy. And you're also based here in Silicon Valley. Um, actually, always am accidentally like referring to your book as the social network and I have to correct myself when I actually see the title. Um, but, um, you know, so, so in that context, you know, what are, what are some of the insights that, um, you know, we, we talk about social networks all the time and there's so much data that comes out of, uh, online interactions that, um, you know, certainly much easier to gather than just, you know, the, the old way of maybe, you know, interviewing people in a survey and saying, who are your friends? Um, so, um, uh, um, but what, what are some of the insights that your book or, you know, this area of research can, uh, can offer to people, uh, in the tech sector who are, uh, creating and shaping these online networks that we're all part of, um, or, you know, to policymakers who are trying to figure out like, you know, is there, is there some kind of regulation necessary and, and how can they intervene in a positive way? Right. I, I think there's, there's several things. So one is that, um, often the algorithms that are there, are ones that try, you know, quite actively and deliberately to put people together who look similar to each other, right? And and you know, find people who have similar interests, put them together, um, find the things I've that look like what I've clicked on before. If if news stories look like that, show that one, the next one to me that looks very similar to the previous one, and you know that sort of exacerbates the kind of homophily and um, div- divisions within networks that we see where we, we build in- increasingly um, homogenous interactions. And I think that, you know, that's sort of just a natural evolution of it, but I, I think it gets, it's, you know, humans have that kind of tendency, but it gets amplified by, by the algorithm interacting with the human and, and that feedback to say, okay, look, you know, um, you like this, we're going to give you more of what you liked and, um, you know, connecting like on LinkedIn, you know, somebody, uh, the kinds of names it's going to suggest are, are people that I have lots of other connections to already. So I, I already have lots of indirect connections to these. It, it's not suggesting people that I have very few connections to. And naturally, I'm more skeptical of people that I have very few connections right. to. Right. So know, when I do get when I do get those uh, kind of random uh, LinkedIn invitations from someone who has no connections to me, or maybe you know one or two connections to people who maybe I don't know very well, then yeah, I'm usually pretty skeptical of that. So I mean, are they are they wrong to to sort of uh, curate or, or filter um, the the networks in this way? Yeah, no. So I think that the, the hard part is there's sort of, you know, how do we get around this? And, and um, I think there's, there's two aspects to it. One is that, you know, you're right, they're not necessarily wrong because 
if if they're just giving me a project I or a product I enjoy and that I use a lot, I'm probably going to you know use it more when they give me things I click yes on and and that I um, have, have resonate with me and so forth. And I think that that's also exacerbated by competition. So if if they don't do it and if they start saying, look, we're going to try and um, help you a little bit by diversifying your network and giving you some connections to people that you normally wouldn't have connected with, but we think would offer you really valuable information. Uh, I, I might say, well, you know, why are they connecting me to all these people I don't know? And, and this seems kind of strange. And um, even though it might be beneficial for me in the short run, it might, you, you might lose users that way. And, and showing people more balanced news feeds, um, you know, might get them to to be less interested in the in the news feed than if you're showing them stuff that that really gets them uh, emotionally active and and so I, I think that that competition in this particular industry means that now you're, you're trying to keep people on your platform, you're trying to keep them engaged in your platform, and so that pushes things more and more in that direction. Uh, how do you deal with this? That's that's a tough question, and and I think part of it is just making sure that that users themselves understand the biases in their networks and how undiversified their news feeds can be, and how that gets exacerbated not only by the beginning homophily, but then the interactions on you know at different levels of of what gets filtered through them by their friends, and then what they actually see because of the algorithm, and then also what they click on. And, you know, once you're taking this like four levels, you get a pretty selected set of, of stuff. And, and I think the more people understand that, the more they could begin to appreciate, um, you know, the, the, the more diverse information stories and connections to, to people outside their realms. But, you know, designing an algorithm that does that in a way that then people appreciate and understand isn't easy. Yeah. Yeah. Cause right. Like you said, if I just get random introductions to people, I don't can't imagine that I'd want to talk to, or, you know, I get things in my newsfeed from the, you know, the, the network that gets outraged over the things I think are great and thinks things are great that I'm inclined to get outraged over and then doesn't really, uh, uh, draw me in. Um, so is there any, like, right, right. is there any, uh, useful thing that policymakers are thinking about or that you or anyone else is advocating, um, you know, for how to, how to try to at least mitigate this problem? No, I mean, I, you know, what I, so I, I can give you what I think works in, in off platforms. And then we can talk about how you might begin to integrate this into platforms. And, you know, one thing we found, so we, we looked at high schools and looked at um, ethnic divisions and friendships within high schools. And we used what's known as the ad health data set. And so, you know, you have a bunch of different high schools and you can look at, at what the friendship patterns look like inside those. And you say, okay, look, um, you know, it, it looks like the whites form friendships with whites, blacks form friendship with blacks. You don't see much integration across them. But what you also notice is, the larger the high school and the bigger the critical masses of different groups, the more they segregate. And the, the high schools and the, the groups that tend to be well integrated into the, the, their surroundings tend to be small ones. So the smaller you make the school, the more people are sort of forced to be in contact with each other. And the more you get those you know, cross-cutting friendships and, and relationships. 
And so if you're, you know, if you're a large school and, and now, now universities like Stanford and other schools are, are reorganizing the way they do their dorms and so forth. Um, one way to, to deal with this is instead of just putting people in a giant free for all where, you know, they go to a large cafeteria with all of the dorms together um, build small communities within that and have people in, in more constant contact with other people within those communities. And once the communities become small enough, there's sort of a, you know, it's, it's really a nonlinear effect. Then suddenly you get a lot more interaction and a lot more interaction across groups. And, and so one question is, you know, so how do, how do you sort of shrink that world, but not shrink it to just a group that's all like me, but shrink it to a world where, I'm suddenly interacting with people who aren't like me, but on a, you know, a few people in, in a, a, a more frequent basis. And, and that seems to work on high school levels. And it, it seems to work on a college level, a university level. Um, and then the question is, how do we scale that up to social media and, you know, larger scales where we can begin to put people into discussion groups, um, that are diverse and, and where you go and you meet the same people and you talk over time and you learn more about them and you learn more about their perspectives. But, you know, if we just sort of show you one or two weird connections, you're not going to say, Oh, wow, that's somebody I want to connect to that. That looks like it's out of the blue. Um, but if we could get people to somehow be in small communities and repeatedly interact with each other on a small scale, but a diverse scale, um, that would be one way to, to help, expose people and, and to actually get those cross-cutting relationships formed. Right. Yeah. I guess the challenge there is, you know, in, in education, we have a lot more uh, control over people, right? <laughs> they, don't, they can't really opt out of, uh, of the system and, you know, we can, we can assign them to dorms or we can assign them to high school classrooms or, uh, or even, you know, different high schools. Um, but uh, when, yeah, what do you think about like, uh, especially people like just, clicking through on an online platform, then it's really easy for them to opt out or get turned off uh, very rapidly. So that's, uh, that's quite a challenging, yeah. challenging case to deal with. Yeah, exactly. And, and I, I don't know what the solution is so far, but it's, but I, I think that, you know, there's lessons that we've learned through seeing how people interact that we can begin to, you know, maybe it's even, it could be in gaming or something else where you start to sort of build groups together and, allow people to interact with within some uh, bubble where where they can be nudged in directions that allow them to enrich their networks. Um, I, th I think, you know, it, at the same time, I think there's dangers, you know, the, it, it's hard because the algorithms have to make choices and we don't want to make choices to censor people or to um, push people and force people into certain patterns but at the same time, we want to enable them to be able to, you know, check the veracity of the information they're getting, to get more access to diverse sources, to connect outside of their usual groups, and offering that it, that those opportunities without forcing it on them is 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 not easy. Yeah. Well, that's, that's one of our big questions, but I guess that, you know, that's, as you say, you know, the key thing is to start to understand it and we can start to understand it in some settings like, uh, like schools, uh, which are, which are important in their own right. Cause you know, that's where we build the foundations of uh, a lot of the rest of our lives. Um, anyway, but also then, yeah, that can give insights at least into what we should be 
hoping to to drive towards in uh, in other arenas. Um, well, I've, I've taken a lot of your time, uh, and but uh, I really appreciate it. It's been really uh, fascinating talking with you um, about this. Uh, so what else, uh, just as a last thing, um, you've mentioned a, a couple of things. What else are you working on now? Um, where, where are you going with this, uh, with this next? Yeah. Well, I, one of the studies I'm most excited about now that, that I think is going to take a while for it to, to come to fruition because of the pandemic is, um, there's a, a group of researchers out of the Santa Fe Institute where we've been, uh, we've designed a set of questions that people are taking to different societies around the world. And we're asking social network questions like who are your friends? Who do you share food with? Who do you borrow from? And then we're also collecting a lot of basic information about people's consumption and wealth and going, you know, we'll have about 30 different societies analyzed around the world and, uh, you know, small scale societies and hunter-gatherer societies, um, agricultural societies. And and from those, and looking at differences both in the networks and some of the institutions, the hope is that we can better understand what leads to things like inequality, what affects growth of these societies. So, uh, you know, it's a, it's a pretty ambitious project, uh, but but by by using exactly the same measurements across these different settings, and having teams go in and carefully implement pretty much exactly the same study, but in these different environments, we can start comparing across environments and and seeing things at a level that that we we don't have we've never had data like that before. So, I'm pretty excited about this. Yeah, that is uh, you know yeah really sort of a new way to approach kind of kind of a cross cultural study. You know, very different from. Uh, I mean, obviously, anyone who, who does cross-cultural research, you know, anthrop- anthropologists doing participant observation or uh, whoever, you know, sociologists doing uh, doing surveys or whatever, probably, you know, tries to make things comparable. But but often the resources are such that you end up, you know, referencing previous research, but you kind of go and do your own thing in the one country that you are working on. And uh, uh, so, yeah, so getting a, a real global, global perspective, uh, comparative perspective sounds uh, like a... A great direction to go in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, um, thanks again. This has been uh, uh, really exciting uh, to, to learn from you today. Um, and uh, I think the listeners will really appreciate it. Um, again, the um, Professor Jackson's book is called The Human Network. Um, and I think I saw you also have um, some online courses that people can take as well. Yes, yes. I have an online course called Social and Economic Networks through Coursera, which will take people into, you know, some of the details of how we map out networks and how we measure learning and and model it and so forth. So there's an online course on that. And then I'm also involved in co-teaching a couple of of game theory um, courses on Coursera as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, and especially, I mean, uh, that for, for this kind of, um, work, you know, having, having the book or having, having someone draw, draw some, uh, some networks out on a, on a board really, really makes a huge difference. Like, even if you're not going to dig into, to all the math of, uh, of the details of how these things work out, a lot of them have a pretty strong intuition once you even just like see, see a few different pictures, but, but having that, that visual element, uh, is, is particularly important Yeah, most um, definitely. To get into it. Um, all right. Well, uh, thanks so much. And, uh, 
hope to uh, hope you'll write another book uh, someday and we can talk again. <laughs> That'd be great. Thank you, Peter.